0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with some built environment professionals about how traveling, working and researching overseas has affected the work they're doing in Australia. Our guest in this episode is Bonnie Herring from Breathe Architecture. Bonnie is the Director of Architecture and Sustainability at Breathe and was the project architect of The Commons, which was the precursor to the groundbreaking sustainable apartment development model, Nightingale Housing. Bonnie participated in the dual Study Tour in 2015, where she visited Japan, Paris and the UK. In this interview, Bonnie shares how intense the reporting and reflection during the dual Study Tour was, the difference between studying buildings in books at university compared to experiencing buildings in person, and the sustainable learning outcomes Bonnie gained while visiting extra-large-scale projects as well as in famous architecture studios. Let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast, Bonnie. It's really great to have you, and thank you for yeah allowing me to use your studio as the uh, interview space.
1: Oh, welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah,
0: so I mean that's kind of a cool thing on Hearing Architecture. Now people are hearing where the architecture happens.
1: Nice
0: and quiet. <laughs> exactly. It's that zen feeling at the Breathe offices. So. Yeah, we're having you on today as part of the, uh, the Grand Tour theme, we we're talking about architects going overseas and learning from their times not in Australia. And you were one of the Dulux Study Tour recipients back in 2015. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what it was like, I guess, winning a place on that tour, and yeah, some of the overarching things that you really loved about that experience?
1: Yeah, it was an incredible experience and really quite an honour to be selected as a recipient of that award, along with some incredible people. And those relationships really shaped how that experience unfolded and certainly how it resonated beyond that tour. Mm. Uh, it was interesting as well. We were, during the tour, we were asked to document what occurred. I produced a tour report, a couple of articles, some blog posts during the tour. We did a follow-up industry presentation, we kept a lot of social updates going uh, and a photo reel sort of as a way of relaying that journey back to family, friends and peers. And it became a way of distilling and drawing from that experience and even kind of now looking back at those things. There have been kind of reference points during the years since, and at times I can kind of dip into that to inform Mm -hmm. breathe projects, our practice even, um, and precedents and things like that.
0: Mm.
1: There's also design strategy that kind of was revealed in that tour, Mm -hmm. a sense of craft or style, construction, technology, and practice approach.
0: Mm. And I guess that's a really Good thing that you had to do the journaling and and blog posts um, for you know architecture AU because you know I think whenever we do any traveling we can just get caught up in the amazing things that we're seeing every day and without having some sort of reference or if you are you know documenting things via photos every few minutes you know you might forget some of the amazing things that happened along the way so that must have been really great to reinforce that
1: mm, it was such an intense experience and I think a lot of the time it's really about looking backwards so that you can unpack it when you're looking at so many things in a day.
0: Absolutely. Because you guys are really smashing it out, though, aren't
1: you? (laughs) Yeah, it was many, many things in it (laughs) at once, (laughs) literally running between practices and projects.
0: Yeah, great. Okay. So it seems like you were visiting so many projects that there was a bunch of different sizes and scales of, of buildings that you were visiting. How how was that? Seeing that juxtaposition of great architecture overseas on the small scale and the large scale. How was that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we really had a huge range of experience in a really incredibly compressed time frame about ten days. We visited more than thirty specific projects on arranged tours and did walking architectural tours in each city. Saw a number of different art exhibitions. We were privileged to go to at least fifteen architectural offices of many different shapes and sizes and ideologies.
0: Oh, so that was in addition to the buildings, you saw 15 practices? Yeah. Oh, There's wow. A,
1: yeah, and that was incredible cross-section. You know, there were all by different names, I thought it was quite interesting. You know, you'd see, you'd go and visit the architect, you know, the atelier, the studio, the practice, the office, the firm, the workshop, the campus, oh. you know, all different <laughs> workflows, some with workshops, special 3D printing areas, sample spaces, The luxury of dedicated libraries and librarians and completely different workstations and display methodology. It was fascinating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the projects that sort of stood out, I guess, in the small section of projects and the large projects, which were the ones that I guess really, really hit home for you?
1: There were. Some really iconic and well-known projects that you'd learn about, you know, during university. That we saw, like the Capsule Tower in Tokyo, Yokohama Port Terminal, Barbican Estate, mm. the Gherkin, Tate Modern, um, <laughs> La Defense, um, the Pompidou Center, Park de la Villette, and we visited some really exemplar hotels that we're lucky enough to stay in. Sometimes libraries public work, right from like pet architecture in Tokyo through to precinct um, regeneration. And some were certainly successful and there were plenty of failures too. And I mean, it was really great just to learn about local rules and the logics that sort of shaped the urban form, how the cities were scaled, designed to flex with tectonic movement (laughs) or carved out to preserve specific views toward uh, landmarks. Or even just cut and consolidate it into a particular hierarchy and it was incredible to see how these mature cities with really clear consistent policy could drive a cohesive city making you know a great comparison to what it's like working here
0: yeah and it sounds like it's such a great little community almost in the Dulux crew as you move around Did you bump into maybe Matt Gibson when you were in Japan? We did.
1: Oh my goodness. Um, That was an incredible experience, actually. I forget why he was there, Um, but yeah, we bumped into him. I think we had dinner with him underneath a railway line next to a photo shoot. I don't know. It was this crazy thing, and he was staying at this incredible hotel, Hotel Akura, Mm. which quite sadly has has since been demolished but that was this uh, it was this incredible extra experience we got just because we ran into him and even a couple of other friends came along for the ride uh, i don't know why everyone was in tokyo at that time but yeah it was this highly crafted hotel with a huge amount of collaborators you know artists collaborators that had it just had this incredible sense of craft and and optimism, um, and it's really sad to see that it's not there anymore. But another like amazing um, moment that we can take from that experience, from that to
0: yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's got to be interesting on uh, well, some of those buildings that you mentioned. You know, the Barbican, the Pompidou Centre, the Gherkin massive, massive projects and. I guess before the tour, Breathe hadn't done heaps of large-scale projects. And then on that tour, you got to see them up close and in personal and then also some of the architects who work on these massive scale projects. So you went to the offices of Norman Foster, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah what was it like seeing the sort of those massive mega-scale projects done by star architects? How did that kind of influence you? Yeah,
1: it was quite divisive and we found think amongst ourselves kind of g- found that we we're all gravitating to, to different things and what we actually were less inclined or less attracted to was quite instrumental in our understanding of, of these cities. Mm. I mean it was this intense cumulative exposure to international practice and it really just drew out our own personal values, agenda, you know our interests and even the, our preference towards certain scales, or delight in public interface or design approach. You know, for me, it was often about like the sustainability merit of the project, or the development of social or cultural capital in the placemaking, or the material approach, or um, right. how the building services were organised neatly, in like an unapologetic articulation of the construction. Mm-hmm. But I guess because most of us on that tour were working at a notably smaller scale than some of those um, iconic practices and projects, we sort of yeah, gravitated away from that disengaging, super scaled icon shape, you know, the shard, the walkie-talkie, cheese grater, the yeah. Kirken, Yokohama <laughs> even, um, and certainly some of the larger precinct development in Paris. Um, you know, in favour of housing particularly or community activation projects. And sometimes, you know, it was the aspirational follies or experiments or even exhibitions that would really cut through that kind of serious architecture, you know, with some positivity and delight. You know, the housing and hotel projects were an array of gorgeous things. Like there was the Barbican, which Mm -hmm. was this brutalist icon, very divisive in its own right, but it achieved so many wonderful things and was just a bit of an architectural wonderland (laughs) Well it
0: seems like there were so many photos and there was looking at the different blog posts and articles written by everyone who was on the tour it seems like the Barbican really captivated your imagination on a big level Um, and like you say it's kind of a divisive project within, you know, for the locals maybe Mm. Yeah, how did that, how did that feel getting there and from an architect's point of view saying, oh this is so beautiful, it's lovely when you know that the public ha- are still sort of coming around in a way to those projects, mm. what was that like?
1: Yeah, it is interesting. I've definitely, I've heard it referred to as you know a hard or scarred kind of outer core, this very brutal concrete rough cast envelope but like a really soft center. Um, where the scale really shifts from this really broad slab and tower multi-residential buildings with you know there's some incredible public promenades and restaurants and cafes and art centres as well but it sort of cracks open on the inside for this smaller tactile human scale that's kind of stood the test of time internally but it's really punctuated with some absolute delight you know there's a real appreciation of landscape spaces pools as a conservatory open-air walkways tactile details it's got a lot to offer mm. as a counterpoint to some of the the community feedback which of course is really valuable too
0: yeah I remember saying some photos of a building I think it was in Paris and were they speech bubbles or thought bubbles as windows in the facade?
1: Yeah, those cloud towers is incredible, almost like really colourful camo, you know, with right. with these um, speech bubble shaped windows and bubbles. It was a real facade folly, but it, you know, in the sea of corporate glass boxes in that section of Paris, it felt really optimistic and positive. Right. Of course, it turned out that that was only skin deep but it really did have a lot of value of comparison and just this sense of delight and yeah.
0: Yeah that's got to be an interesting one where you've got the Barbican where people might have had a stronger reaction to the exterior and thinking it was hard and coarse but then inside the results were more positive and more homey but then with the cloud towers, the exterior was quite fun, and playful, but then in, on the interior, it didn't it wasn't executed as well as the exterior. Yeah. Yeah. Has that started to also influence the way that you are also looking? I guess at you know the larger scale projects that breathes is doing now, like the village, overall from you know, on the scale side of things, I guess it's probably closer to, or you could you could learn from the Barbican in a way. Has that had an influence there? Where you were thinking about breaking down the larger scale of of a whole village into smaller parts?
1: It's certainly valuable, it really is. And I think that contrast of amenity and then the real need to crack open that urban form to give back to the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Barbican was really about reactivating a portion of the city and bringing people back to live in the city and acknowledging that that's a really great, it should be a really great place to be and trying to be aspirational about that to attract people to live in together, closer together and mm. and I guess those projects do achieve that in a, in a sense, you know, it's similarly aspirational. Perhaps we do have a culture now of, of living in the city um, where at the time, you know, post-war it was a, sort of a little bit different in London. But yeah, that kind of aspirational nature is perhaps something worth taking away.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. And you mentioned as well about Hotel Akura that's now been demolished. Was that an emotional thing, I guess, <laughs> for you as an architect, knowing that this building was going to be torn down and it was one of the places that you were visiting as, a, as an aspirational project?
1: Yeah. I mean, there was this incredible um, sense of delight being in that space. And, you know, after the fact, discussing it with the fellow tourists, Monique, John, Nick and Casey, there was this real mourning when we, when we knew it was actually being demolished because there was just so much craft and thought and delight and incredible scale and adjacent sort of mix-up of, of uses within that sort of public realm. But, yeah, we definitely were sad to see it go.
0: Yeah. I wonder if it's something that is only an experience that architects get holding on to buildings that had an emotional you know, impact on them. Do you ever think about why that might be?
1: Maybe, I mean, I've always thought architects, you know, we working in a real mix of the subjective and the objective. And I think we can get really attached to things that don't necessarily make, you know, sense. Like it's more of a creative pursuit. I think, you know, our practice is not really of that ilk, but I think there's some optimism that we should take away from these kind of more creative ideas. And there were definitely some other examples even on the tour, you know, the capsule tower, for example, is something that I was so fascinated with as a student, you know, the metabolists of the 60s, you know, these evolving mega structures, you know, that were meant to have permanent cranes on the top to help, you know, these capsules be reconfigured and moved over time. And I, you know, I wanted to love it. And I did love it, but you just, it's kind of, pushing against the grain you know this particular project of course is also I think possibly currently being demolished as well. But I mean we were really lucky there was a a, one of the capsules were I think on an equivalent Airbnb scenario which I don't think was allowed but (laughs) we all sneakily went up in groups of three um, to witness this incredible piece of history and creativity and art you know Mm. but it was quite sad you know it had netting trying to keep things out and things in around the entire building it looked pretty sad and I mean internally it was a bit cramped and that kind of sense of community was not present at all and I think certainly didn't feel like a healthy kind of building, you know, in terms yeah. of access to light, air and ventilation. Yeah.
0: But and is, do you think that's one of the biggest benefits of something like the Dulux study tour, or, or I guess if people were going to do an independent tour, that if you've seen these buildings as a student or a graduate or wherever, on the computer, in articles and magazines, that there is this very different experience in seeing them in person?
1: Totally. Uh, I, I think... Yeah, I guess the creative tools that we have, or that we're introduced to in study, you know, they don't necessarily apply. I mean, there was even another one, the Yokohama Port Terminal. I remember being so fascinated with the method of its manufacture and its modelling and all of these things, but, you know, when you're there, it sort of loses that human scale and and that kind of translation to reality. So, yeah, I do think touring helps just test these ideas and help work out what should survive as an idea. Like, what of the, the kind of subjective curiosity, um, creativity, what part of the sculpture should be realised versus perhaps, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just part of the embedded narrative and not as present I don't know
0: (laughs) yeah and I wonder what that is if it's just the power of the image and the narrative like you say and yeah if it's just if that's captured in a very particular way on some projects that that end up captivating lots of people yeah I wonder what 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 that might be in the future for us to understand the the delicacies of what you end up finding when you went there in person Mm. how we can capture that in the future
1: the image is so powerful Mm. but It was often the things between those icons or perfect images, you know, the Mm. things between that was most exciting or even the things that didn't necessarily photograph that well. You know, there was some novelty and social benefit to those things. We saw Fuji Kindergarten, Mm. which was this incredibly optimistic project outside of Tokyo where the design was just so heavily collaborative with you know, teachers, educators that, that knew a lot about these children and mm. just occupying that building because of how thoughtful it has been in how it's been designed. You know, imparts knowledge on the children, like actually helps build their physical strength in how they <laughs> occupy the building and their sort of kinesthetic understanding of space You know, they can run around the building. It's a circular Mm. space. They can climb trees and, you know, the places where they put their slippers or empty a water pail, like it's all part of that kind of tactile understanding of space and and just learning and instilling, you know, growth and appreciation of design on on these children. Mm. And that's something really hard to capture in an image.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of those projects where there was probably a lots of rhetoric about it, you know, it was actually written in magazines and things. But until you get there and you see it in action, and I remember seeing a lot of the photos for that project and you see kids running around and, and having a great time, but I bet it's very different when you actually see, you know, everything in movement and it all working, working mm. together in, in person. It must be amazing. Mm.
1: It was. I was thinking about it a little bit more because I was looking over some of the articles that I'd written and I felt like, you know, it was a great reminder that sometimes incredible ideas fail. (laughs) You know, thinking about the Barbican, you know, it failed on a number of fronts, Uh, Maison La Roche, uh, which was a Cabuccia house that we snuck into between (laughs) buildings or the capsule towers, you know, they were innovative. But even though they failed in part, at least, you know, they offered a clearer path forward for the next designer and for the next the next innovation. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely value in that. And I think that kind of optimism and maybe a degree of folly <laughs> was incredible uh, it was incredibly valuable to the enjoyment of space and and the city more broadly. And that you know it was the spaces between attractions mm-hmm. <laughs> that were often the most relatable we were. Going down, I think we're at La Defense or somewhere in a Grand Boulevard in, a corporate boulevard in um, Paris. And we saw these cloud towers, these sort of 70s cloud shaped extrusions in the distance that were, you know, green and pink and blue. And we're like, what's that over there? <laughs> and that tour guide is like, where are they going? That's, no, you don't want to see that. And we're like, yes, we do. <laughs> just like, race off. It was, it was really fun.
0: Oh, that's great. But I think that's also one of those things that when you do a tour and you get to an architectural tour and you get to see these buildings in person, that there's some of these buildings, like a core building that might have taken the world by storm when it was first finished and then visiting it now, it's kind of like, oh, okay, those are the things that they did and tried there and it was, okay, that didn't really take off, did it? <laughs> and then visiting the Barbican it almost seems like it was the reverse in a way where there were some unsuccessful elements of it. But now after all this time, now it's finally appreciated. <laughs> yeah.
1: For sure. It's earned its stripes somehow. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's all just learning, isn't it? The I mean the Maison La Roche I wanted to love it, but, you know, going into that space it was a real reminder that, you know, performance is appalling and <laughs> that ramp, I mean it's completely unusable, you know. And, but you really had to sort of stand back and and recognize that you know whilst we don't live with servants anymore, you know that was the time and and yet it was still incredibly revolutionary for you know its time. and that there were still some really beautiful aspirational elements that carried through and held.
0: And I guess one of the other huge benefits of the Dulux Study Tour must be being with other people that are super focused on architecture. What was that like on a day-to-day level where you could visit a building and then speak with other super interested people in your area of of interest? What was that like?
1: It's definitely the biggest takeaway from the whole experience was that kind of formation of that yeah, relationship with all of these incredible individuals. It was it was interesting actually, early on the tour, Nick um, broached this idea of defining, uh, you know, each of us, you know, our relativity in, in terms of a diagram, you know, that we might sit at different sort of ends of things, but it was all relative, you know, sort of thinking of us in terms of a nuanced and sort of value frame to understand our interests, our sensitivities and attractions, kind of putting us in this frame of the romantics, the scientists and the storytellers to help.
0: And Was it like a crazy Venn diagram of how (laughs) everything kind of overlapped?
1: Yeah, I mean it helped. Yeah, it was just this value frame that kind of created a lens for all of what we saw to come after that sort of first night when we're talking about this. It helped us, you know, <laughs> you'd be touring somewhere and they'd be like, Bonnie would like this and <coughs> Mon would like that, you know, because we had this sort of sense of how we fit together or how we were different, that nuanced understanding of architecture. But um, look, the group was so motivated and practised in architectural travel, you know, they'd even worked to cram even more broader range of experience into a <laughs> touring thing, you know, in gaps in the agenda, they'd like, add extra visits to different things but we were able to, in those gaps, able to discuss our purpose, our inspiration, how we presented amongst the industry and at the end of the day being able to like discuss these things, add heaps of rigour and depth to our experience, our ability to criticise or sorry critique and be inspired by this work it just gave it heaps of momentum. You know if if you were travelling with friends or family, as an architect, it'd be normal to like arrange a building visit amongst other sort of rec- recreational in- interests. But here, you could just go all out. It was super rare and incredibly indulgent uh, focus on architecture. It was complete immersion in design. It just.
0: Yeah, I can imagine like the space between one building to the next. You know, if you're jumping on a shinkansen or whatever to get to the next building, it's just like, all right, guys, let's debrief. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you all think, I know you probably hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Like being able to have that intensive group. I'm sure with anyone with maybe what they. You know, do as work or even have as a hobby, it must be fantastic to be on that tour with people who are all at a similar kind of stage in their career, able to talk about these things at length and also, like you say, it's like you can, you can talk about it from the perspective of your professional reaction and then also the personal, whereas if you might be talking about that with your family because they're not as into it in depth, they might not have that appreciation that it could go two ways.
1: It's quite a bonding experience. (laughs) And something that, you know, I think really, yeah, it it tied us all together uh, and we we go back to it. And it's remarkable, actually. There's actually an annual alumni for Dulux study tours. (laughs) I think that intense bonding experience means that when we all get together, (laughs) again, it's quite indulgent and and very special. You know, the veil comes down, it becomes, incredibly collaborative and supportive kind of environment. Mm.
0: Yeah, it seems like because of that intensity, it's almost like immersion experiences where other people can read about it and they can hear about where you visited and, and who you were with, but the people who are in that group really get it and you can also share similar stories with past alumni as well who had you know that sort of intensity going on as well so that must be great also being able to share with people from other other tour years to share those sorts of stories with each other it must be amazing
1: yeah it it really is I think at the end of each tour each new tour there's been presentations on the takeaways that the the new alumni come and present to the rest of us on what They've learnt, and it's it's just incredible to reflect on their reflections and just progress and amplify the takeaway.
0: It sounds fantastic that you still do catch up with people who are on your tour, and then also people who are on past tours. Do you get the opportunity to then, I guess, ask each other questions later on about projects that you're working on in another form of you know professional development almost that you can you can have that group to lean on.
1: Yes, absolutely. We yeah. definitely have a bit of a Brains Trust WhatsApp. <laughs> you know, when you start to understand others' perspectives so closely, you know, when you find yourself in a similar situation, it's great to be able to call on this group. Certainly, our immediate year, we do speak quite often about these types of things, but certainly we're in the corner of each other as well. So, learning through what they're doing and the incredible work, they'll just Spanning Australia, with it's Mm. it's quite special.
0: Yeah, and it seems like most of the people who who do the tour, you know, achieving great things, and they're working their way up in practice, and then either running their own practice, like yourself, or they started their own practice, and you know, seeing what they want to foster in their own in their own work and in their actual firm structure. What was the big takeaway for you visiting? all those firms that you visited, because you've definitely got to visit all these amazing projects which I think anyone would be envious of, but um, going into these practices must must have also had a unique edge to it in a way.
1: Yeah, the different scales of practice, I mean it was interesting, it, it unveiled this kind of notion of the architect as well, and I guess the curiosity of that was really overtaken by this sort of unengaging operation and scale. Um, We started to see you know the pitfalls of these kind of celebrity brands and the lack of succession planning where practice progress was really stymied often by ego. (laughs) Um, You know you go into these really cramped Japanese offices and people are frantically punching in (laughs) or like there was this sort of sense of competitive employment threat in some of these more massive campuses of offices or even just these kind of oppressive rambling spaces kind of smacking of burnout you know really confirmed you know our practices own industry standing at a kind of global level and the value of our ethics purpose and, and culture
0: yeah it's got to be an interesting dynamic to think about the sheer scale of the work and also, I guess, the pitfall of some... the idea of the architect or the celebrity architect, that the pressure that they must put on themselves and on anyone else in the practice, you know, that, that the world's eye is on them. And, um, yeah, I wonder if that's just something that might only happen with, with those mega companies or was that something that happened in the smaller companies that deliver nuanced work as well?
1: It didn't seem to. I mean, it was a intense seemed extensive snapshot, but I'm I'm sure there's different examples. It just seemed more pronounced in those larger practices.
0: Yeah. So visiting the larger practices, you know, it's got to have some good takeaways and some, you know, interesting takeaways as well, learning moments. Because Breathe is so, like it's it's a leader in sustainability in Australia and even for the world, what was the takeaway in terms of, what those big practices are striving for with sustainability and what BREEZE output is.
1: It's an interesting question. I think sometimes the scale of the work was just so substantial that it it almost didn't relate. I guess there were some amazing adaptive reuse projects that were really curious and offered this incredible sense of placemaking and rehabilitation of buildings. But yeah, when it got to that larger scale, it was really hard to see the, the value of the, I don't even know, like the materials just got really terrible and like it just, you know, it didn't, it just wasn't inspiring no. um, or joyful in terms of sustainability. The littler projects, you know, that were just a better balance like the Barbican or yeah, these adaptive reuse projects. Were pretty great.
0: Mm. Do you reckon that might be because on larger projects it's important to be looking at things in terms of the numbers that just by the sheer size and scale some of those numbers get scary so if you're talking about interior lining and there's an option to use magnesium board or plaster board or something like that mm. that anyone who's looking at the numbers would just say well there's some low-hanging fruit right there. That'll, we can mm. halve that number by mm. <laughs> using this other product that's ubiquitous mm. and, you know, might be... Well, probably, yeah, it's going to be more harmful to the environment than using something else. Do you reckon that, that might be one of the issues, is that sort of the numbers start to overtake what the end result will be for a project into the future?
1: Maybe. Maybe it's also relative, you know, the bigger projects had to make big moves but they sort of lacked this human element that I think some of these more integrated outcomes like the adaptive reuse projects or um, even the Barbican just yeah some of those more substantial projects the glass boxes or the just huge urban forms lacked that. Ability to engage with at that human scale, you know, in terms of having access to light air and ventilation, to landscape, to tactile, robust, and you know, ideally renewable materials, they sort of all of that kind of dropped away at a certain scale. And so, from a sustainability perspective, it was a lot easier to engage with. Barbican, or you know, there was this incredible adaptive reuse project in Shoreditch in London, and I just had this optimism but an incredible amount of care mm-hmm. about its sustainability agenda and the way that it engaged from a cultural sustainability perspective with the nearby, you know, suburb. It was that part of the East End was looking for renewal um, and it was using cultural activation um, and really careful careful kind of building services strategies that were lean but insightful. There was really some value there but it also I think was a great reminder that Australia is also doing some really interesting things and it sort of gave perspective to some of the work that we do.
0: Mm. It definitely seems like on, on you know, campus-sized projects that providing floor area is such a high priority that um, yeah, it would take a, a lot of fine grain design work and consideration to make sure that then that human element and the human experience within those massive floor areas mm. is, is considered
1: in that kind of corporate environment, it must be tough to operate at that level to to bring that level of care. But equally at that scale, you should be doing a lot. (laughs) You really should be. Um, You know, the ability to impact is substantial on those projects. And perhaps my experience doesn't extend to fully appreciate what they were doing. I know it was a fair bit, but it was harder to relate to at that human level. Mm, I think ultimately what I got from that was that the culture at Breathe was incredibly positive, Mm. you know, at a, dare I say, global scale, you know, there was just a lot more enjoyment to working in a place like this where there was an opportunity to see a path forward for our staff, you know, that our people could see that one day they'd be empowered to take the reins and, and to redirect our future as a practice and I think in some of those architect branded practices there was really only one way, one direction and it didn't offer a future to its team members who were holding it together, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it was losing its potency, and the legacy was, you know, not going to live, live beyond it.
0: Mm. I guess that's, is there kind of a, a democratic process, therefore, in, in Breathe, where there's a conversation between the, the management team and then the actual staff to say, you know, you guys okay? You know, how can we help? What would you like to do? <laughs> you know, do you have any suggestions? That sort yeah. of dialogue.
1: Yeah, I guess mm. we like to try and find people that are brilliant in their own right, you know, because we want to learn from them and we want to grow together. Mm. And if we're hiring people, you know, better than ourselves to to do that, we should listen to them and to let that chart the course. You know, we're bound together with a certain value set that's incredibly strong. And so if you're on that trajectory, take us with you. (laughs)
0: That's fantastic. So for anyone out there who's interested in working at Breathe, get in contact. So it's a wonderful thing that I think some people do, and this comes back to some of the first things that we were talking about, that when some people go travelling, they do keep a travel journal. And because you um, needed to do journaling and writing blogs um, throughout that process, what has it been like revisiting some of that work now because it's been seven years almost since you did that tour what's it been like looking back at what you went through
1: pretty refreshing particularly (laughs) off the back of a pandemic I have to say yeah Yeah, it was just such an intense experience that just afforded this deeper appreciation of international context you know that it sort of positioned for me you know practice projects and purpose like it's great looking back and seeing how layered that experience really was
0: yeah and have you read anything that you now sort of think oh gosh <laughs> I, I really hated that or i really liked that or yeah. anything it wasn't that bad was it
1: <laughs> no it was all great <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, and I guess since then, there have been some other buildings that were demolished, I think, that you guys visited. Has that changed how much importance you put onto things like, you know, either renovations or adaptive reuse projects after going through seeing these buildings that might have fallen out of favour that people then did demolish, but after being there, you realised that it had intrinsic value?
1: I guess a lot of these projects were of their time, you know, and... Whilst I'd love to save all the embodied energy in those buildings and see some of that craft retained, there's certainly instances, you know, the capsule tower, for example, where it probably does need to go. I can't see a way to make that particular space a space that's healthy to live in. You know, sometimes we've got to learn from our mistakes and move on. I'd love to see some of the legacy of the Hotel Acura live on somewhere. I, I'll have to unpack that. There's some beautiful photos that were taken to log that project and keep it in, in living memory. But, yeah, I think we've got to take what we can from these projects and and move forward.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's got to be a, a big consideration that Breathe thinks about, is that you want your buildings to perform as well as possible for as long as possible because we're using resources to build them but not every project is positive (laughs) or
1: successful you know and and it's hard there's so many decisions in every project some of them are going to be right some of them are going to be wrong and some of them are only going to be right part of the time (laughs) or for part of the population and so yeah I think this was a great insight into you know how projects can fail
0: Mm.
1: as well as succeed
0: yeah right And what do you think has been the biggest thing that you've taken from your time on the Dulux study tour and maybe even any travel you've done afterwards in terms of bringing that back to breathe and in your day-to-day?
1: Well, I have to say it definitely inspires and motivates. It gets you excited about architecture. It's hard to find time, I think, in our busy busy days to... Indulge in what's happening everywhere, you know, at multiple levels across project typologies that you're not working in. Um, so there was so much value for that, just getting me excited and bringing that excitement back to the practice. But certainly on a day to day level, you know, engaging with Mon, Nick, Casey, and John, um, we do engage quite regularly. Mm. So, Mon this week, last week. (laughs) Um, And that that does shape me as a, a designer moving forward as well.
0: And I guess it's also good to see the work that you've been doing and almost saying, okay, that's what we've been able to achieve and now I can compare it to what's happening overseas. Was that also good to be able to say, you know, oh, okay, that's how they did it and I've been looking at them and, you know, We're doing okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at some level. Yeah, I'd agree with that.
0: All right, Bom. Well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to have you on and to hear all about the Dulux Study Tour. And we can't wait to see what Breeze produces next. this has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to our guest in this episode, Bonnie Herring. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast, Bonnie, and for your amazing leadership in the architecture and sustainability profession. You're the best. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favorite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey, Hilary Duff and Max Legal White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.